Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast, the podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and hopefully some practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, and joining me on this episode, but not with me now as I'm pre-recording, is Dr. Paul Williams, a good friend of mine, and he is a fellow Curbsider from Philadelphia, where he teaches as a clinician educator at a large academic program. Paul, like me, likes to hold the name of his employer uh, secret. So we can just say that Paul works at Cashlack Memorial Hospital with me and Tony and Stuart. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Peter Howard Jones. Dr. Peter Howard Jones is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine and the Center for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention at Baylor College of Medicine. He completed medical school and an internal medicine residency at Baylor College of Medicine, and he is board certified in both internal medicine and clinical lipidology. He's a fellow of the American College of Physicians, as well as the National Lipid Association, where he has served as the chief science officer since 2013. He has served on in a number of academic, scientific, and community committees and has published more than 200 clinical abstracts, articles, and chapters in textbook. He is an associate editor of the Journal of Clinical Lipidology, and needless to say, he is more than qualified to teach us all about lipids, which he does on this episode. So we talk about all the pharmacologic therapies as well as the supplemental therapies, add-on therapies to statins and PCSK9 inhibitors. We go through all that stuff. We go through the... ACC AHA guidelines and the National Lipid Association guidelines. I think after listening to this, you're going to be quite comfortable with treating dyslipidemia. So without further ado, here is Dr. Peter Howard Jones. Hello. Hello. Hi, is this Dr. Jones? It sure is. Hi, Dr. Jones. This is Matt Watto. Hey, Matt. How are you? Can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. And Wonderful. I have I have with me Paul Williams. Hi, Dr. Okay. Jones. Hey, Paul. Excited to talk to you. My pleasure. So I am from uh, for for the purposes of the air, I say that I'm from Cashlack Memorial Hospital, which is the fake hospital that I say I work at because my real employer, which is a large organization, doesn't. There's too much red tape if I if I use my my real name, so to speak. Well, this is my real name, but if I use my real employer. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, I, I get it. I understand. Paul, I don't know, are you are you uh, saying where you work? For the purpose of the podcast, we'll probably just say a large teaching hospital in, in Philadelphia, if that's cool. Oh, okay. All right, that's awesome. Uh, we, are, we are really excited to talk to you. Uh, I, Paul and I both work as general internists. We're both heavily involved in teaching residents, medical students, and... I think there's a lot of confusion about lipids, and, uh, and and that's what we're hoping to clear some of that up tonight. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I understand the uh, the, the the challenges there are for for the frontline primary care physicians in helping their patients decide, you know, whether prevention is the right thing. And I mean, a cardiologist may say, or a specialist may say, you need to do this, you need to be on these medicines. And then they disappear and end up in the primary care office and say, I don't know, am I supposed to be taking these medicines? Is this really for me? And yeah, I mean, what's the primary care physician supposed to be able to say, right? Yeah, it's it's a, definitely a struggle. Uh, I, I do, I do want to get into 
the struggle that we go through with patients and statins, but the first, right. so first we, we usually like to do just some sort of warm up questions. So, um, and, and I had written some of them down there. So what's, what sort of stuff are you into outside of the medical field? <laughs> well, uh, you know, at, at my age and I'm, uh, in my, in my sixties, I guess I've, uh, 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 d- done a lot of things um, uh, over the years, but medicine is clearly what I was meant to do, and I've uh, I've been privileged to uh, to be in it for 35 years. Yeah, I hope I make it. I hope I make it that long in medicine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> um, so, any hobbies outside of medicine that you care to speak on, or anything that you do outside of medicine that has kind of maybe made you a better physician, or because part of part of what we like on the show, we're talking to people who are more experienced than ourselves, is just to get that kind of mentorship aspect of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do try to do things to to de stress. I mean, my favorite things are anything outdoors. I, I love golf. I love water sports in particular, and I like to fish and I do like to hunt. And you know, really, the I, my, my adrenaline rush tends to come from fast water sports. I mean, mm. I ride. I have a jet ski. I uh, a, a boat. I, I like to uh, wakeboard and water ski, and and uh, so those are the kind of things that uh, that that I enjoy. And being in Houston, you can do that for many months out of the year. So I really enjoy that. And right, Texas always brags about the three hundred days of sun. I can vouch they they do have a <laughs> Paul yeah. Paul. They definitely have more sun than you do in Philadelphia. Wow, more sun than Philadelphia. It's hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, sir. Uh, one of the things, uh, one of the things I wanted to know is what what sort of things do you read to keep up on uh, lipids and and this whole topic? Is there any good resources you can point us and our listeners to? Well, yeah, I mean there there are uh, uh, vascular and prevention uh, journals. I mean, you know, the old school way of uh, going online and looking at uh, at journals. Uh, they're specifically lipid journals like Atherosclerosis and Journal of Clinical Lipidology. Uh, but there's also cardiovascular journals, the ones we all know. Uh, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology and Circulation are great ones. But also like websites that uh, sort of keep you up uh, if you can't don't have time to look at all those journals. And that's like heart.org mm-hmm. and Medscape, uh, particularly if you if you tell them that you're interested in uh, in prevention or lipids or or or, or cardiology, they'll uh, they'll they'll uh, send you things that are specific in that area. And I also think that anybody who's interested in in um, in any area, whatever tends to to float your boat, uh, find a professional organization that you can uh, find like-minded people that has camaraderie, where you can learn good things and stay uh, um, abreast of uh, new information. And that's why I have always been associated with the National Lipid Association. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. And. You did a did you do a fellowship in lipids? It I, I saw that you're board certified in clinical lipidology. How does that come about? Well, no, there isn't really a fellowship in that. Um, uh, it you you can get boarded in clinical lipidology by uh, taking specific uh, uh, courses that mm-hmm. the National Lipid Association uh, uh, provides, as well as study guides, and then you have to uh, go to at least two two-day prep courses to try to set you up in order to uh, be ready to take the uh, the board. So you really sort of have to be in it and all in and, and be ready to take some intensive uh, study to, uh, to, uh, to make it. Mm-hmm. 
How did you decide to to, to get so involved in lipids? <laughs> well, it was 35 years ago when nobody cared about lipids and nobody thought it was clinically important, which it wasn't at the time. But I had a mentor who told me it would be. And they say he said, I, I need a, a person who will be a, a, a who will start a referral lipid clinic. And then I want you to also use those patients to be a clinical trialist because there's going to be new medications coming. And that was in 1981. And, and my mentor was correct because in 1983, the first statin trial started. Hmm. And so I started in the clinical trials in 1983 and have been involved in uh, all of the lipid altering drugs in the last uh, 30 to 35 years. And obviously it worked and it was clinically important. So I was in the right place at the right time, but I had a great mentor I listened to. Okay. So I think this is a good time to ask you, because you, you said you're involved in all these trials. Do you have any disclosures that you that you need to give our audience uh, before we proceed to ask you everything we can about <laughs> lipids? <laughs> Well, yeah, I, 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 I think uh, I am the chief science officer for the National uh, Lipid Association. So the NLA, I, I serve to help them uh, organize their uh, their focus on education and uh, uh, and also th that's number one. So I, I will be probably referring a lot to the NLA because I'm in that capacity. But I have been a scientific advisor, only a scientific advisor to Merck, Amgen, and Sanofi. Okay. Now, uh, I have not been a scientific advisor to anybody, but that sounds like an awesome gig. So what does that, what kind of stuff does that entail? Well, it uh, usually involves uh, a company's desire to uh, uh, figure out what direction they need to go with, with uh, medications that they have in experimental design. So they're usually in phase two or phase three trials, and they need to be considering where to go in, in outcomes trials or for certain other surrogate outcomes um, uh, evaluations, and a company thinks they know what they're doing, but occasionally they may want to go out and ask somebody in the scientific uh, arena, are we on the right track? Are we making the right mm -hmm. decisions or are things we haven't overlooked? So I end up being on one of those scientific outside persons that helps uh, advise them on some of those tracks. That sounds like a great job. I... It's, it's fun. It, it yeah. is fun, and it, uh, and, and it does keep you... Uh, abreast of where things are going and what's coming along in uh, in, in certain areas because these are usually experimental kind of decisions that are are being made. That's that's true. So now, uh, before we start asking you all our questions, any specific learning object objectives that you would like to give um, for the listeners? Well, yeah. I mean, I, th I think on this, since we are focused on lipids, I think, first of all, the the listener needs to understand that there is a direct causal role of lipoproteins in early atherosclerosis development and as well in, a, in the progression of established vascular disease. So it's not an association. There's a direct causal role. So I think you need to understand that. I also think you need to recognize that individual patient risk is the most important decision you need to make before deciding on specific therapy. So if the patient's risk for a future cardiovascular event is high enough, then they are uh, a candidate for more intensive treatments, which may involve drug treatment. And lastly, they need to be able to, um, you know, understand some of the available drugs, which we'll talk about, like statins, but also the, what are the best therapies that, uh, that target and minimize the lipid contributions to, uh, to atherosclerotic risk and what may be coming down the line. 
Okay. So we're going to get into statins. First, we just kind of, uh, one of the things that I saw recently that I've been bringing up with the students or the residents in the, in the teaching room is that the, this add-on therapy with niacin and Tricor, the FDA said they do not routinely recommend that anymore. What are you, how are you handling that situation? Well, I, you need to understand that the FDA made this decision based on a couple of clinical trials which have uh, uh, come, come out here in the last several years in which they attempted to add either niacin or a fibrate like phenofibrate to a statin in patients with established heart disease. And, you know, these trials, they were called the AIM High, the ACCORD trial, and the HPS2 Thrive. These trials showed that patients on optimal and high-intensity statins with established heart disease, if you add niacin or you add phenofibrate, you don't seem to get any additional benefit on reducing cardiovascular events. So the FDA said, well, we had them indicated to be used in combination with statins, but it looks like if you routinely give them to patients who are optimally treated with statins, you don't really get any extra benefits. So they decided to withdraw the combination use with statins. Niacin and, and phenofibrate are still available and they can be used as monotherapy in patients. Their FDA is just saying we don't have any evidence that adding them routinely to statins uh, is beneficial to the patients, and I think that's fair. Paul, how are you guys handling that? Well, I, I, I think that um, that there are situations where patients don't tolerate optimal statins, um, and they they have persistent, uh, very high triglycerides. Uh, and niacin and and uh, and phenofibrate uh, specifically lower triglycerides and so in some selected patients these drugs have a place i think phenofibrate probably is easier to tolerate than niacin and probably is your first choice if you're going to add something but I, I i think that they have a place they're not for everybody but in the appropriate situation i think they can and and, and should be used and i think that's what the fda was trying to say it's not for routine add-on but there is a place, and that's why they leave them on the market to lower triglycerides, uh, because they are effective for that. And for selected patients, they can be used, particularly in patients who can't or won't tolerate optimal statin therapy. I think from our end, at least in, in terms of the practice that I see, I think one of the benefits of at least the 2013 ACC AHA guidelines and the emphasis on statins is it almost took some of the thinking out of it. So yeah. that, to the extent that now we don't even really consider other therapies or adding on therapies. I mean, sort of improve it, I guess, is sort of a separate thing I'd like to talk about at some point. Right. But, but now it's sort of, we're almost just sort of fiddling around with the statin dosing or trying an alternate statin, or maybe we can do it three times a week, or how about tenebrosuvastatin versus the idiotorvastatin, rather than actually considering alternate therapies, because it's almost like they've been taking off the table by at least, at least according to the 2013 sort of the ACC guidelines. Well, yeah, I mean, you need to understand that those uh, those guidelines had a very specific purpose. They were they they looked at only randomized clinical trials and not the totality of evidence that we have for treatment of patients. And if you just look at randomized clinical trials, you're absolutely right. It's it's all driven by statins right. and using the appropriate dose statins. So it did at least make it easy to say that statins are first-line treatment for all high-risk patients, and they told you what four groups they considered high-risk, and used the appropriate dose. And I think that's fair. That's, that's a, you know, it's not dumbing it down, but it, it is a good starting place. But for, for some patients, it's not the ending place. 
And so you do need to know that there are other uh, uh, lipid drugs available depending on what the individual patient presents to you. And that's where, you know, again, uh, things like ezetimibe, which you mentioned the Improved trial, and, and, and phenofibrate, maybe even niacin can play a role and do play a role in selected patients with fairly significant genetic or difficult lipid problems. Sure. Well, how about niacin or fibrates as monotherapy? Uh, you get a patient that says, I don't want to take a statin. I, I would be willing to try a phenofibrate or a niacin. Is there, what can we point them to? How do you counsel them? Is this going to prevent them from having any sort of major adverse cardiac event or are there yeah. studies to show that, that, that those are helpful? Well, there, there, there have been. I mean, it's a, again, this is a, because I'm an old guy. I can remember these things coming out. But, but the very first um, um, monotherapy trial that uh, really had a substantial benefit was in 1987, and it was a fibrate monotherapy trial called the Helsinki Heart Study. Right. And um, it used gemfibrozil, which at that time was the was the only uh, reasonable fibrate available. But as monotherapy in high risk patients it did reduce cardiovascular events. Now, it, of course, it got overshadowed by the benefits that statins showed as monotherapy compared to fibrates. But if you don't have a patient's tolerability to a statin, remember there is data there in the Helsinki Heart Study. And then soon thereafter, there was a study called the VA HIP study, which was done by the Veterans Administration um, uh, participation, which also showed that a fibrate uh, reduced cardiovascular events as uh, uh, primary as as monotherapy. So more than niacin, fibrates do have, although it's old data, they do have monotherapy benefit and they're safe. So I, I think uh, you know your listeners need to, to be aware that that is an alternative if patients will refuse to consider taking a statin. And that that's really helpful because I, I have seen those, I, I mean, they're certainly, they've certainly been pushed to the side a lot. Um, but I think maybe maybe there is a little bit more of a role based on what you're telling us here, which is interesting. And how about for the patients with, they're on a statin, um, a high dose of a statin, but their triglycerides remain high. Uh, add-on therapy in that situation, what do you think? Well, it, it really depends on how high the statins are. I'll tell you that, I mean, how high the, the triglycerides are on that optimal statin dose. You know, it... it if they're over 500 milligrams per deciliter, yes, you need to add something on top. Um, and it's not only a risk for cardiovascular events in the, in the long haul, but there's a short-term risk of pancreatitis. Sure. So I do think that fibrates are a great add-on. They're pretty safe. Phenofibrate added to statins is a, is a safe thing to do. Omega-3 fatty acids would be the next choice to consider adding on if triglycerides are over 500. And, you know, really in my experience, sometimes you need to do both uh, mm fibrates and, and omega-3s on top of high-intensity statins if triglycerides are, are, are uh, uh, stubbornly above 500. The issue we don't know are the ones who have mild triglyceride elevations, you know, whether 200 or 300 milligrams per deciliter, should you routinely consider adding either an omega-3 or a fibrate? And the, right now, we don't have any outcomes data that treating that specific patient with either one of those classes of drugs will give you incremental benefit. Uh, there are a couple of trials going on with omega-3s in that population that should come out in the next year or two. But short of that, we don't know exactly what to do about adding fibrates or omega-3s if triglycerides are only uh, uh, moderately elevated 
you know, that 200 to 300 range on top of an optimal statin. And that, at least in my practice, that seems to be a common thing that I see. So I'm glad to have actually finally have an answer, even even yeah. if the answer is we don't know. It's still... we don't know. <laughs> I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with adding either one of those classes of drugs on. You're not probably harming the patient. I, I can probably tell you that. I just can't tell you that adding it, what the incremental benefit would be. That's all I can't say. Okay. And and what about what about fish oil? Because you you mentioned that that's I know people love to take fish oil. I if fish oil was a statin, I would have no problem getting everyone on on fish oil. But it, I have so much problem getting everyone to take a statin because of the stuff in the news. Right, right. Well, the you know the the natural product idea yeah, always always um, uh, is appealing to patients, and mm-hmm. and uh, they understand uh, omega threes and. And you know it's it's a you, if you eat enough fish you can certainly get uh, get some omega threes but you know the amount that's necessary to probably give a cardiovascular benefit is a lot more than you can get either eating it um, or just in some of these over the counter uh, supplements that you uh, that you find because most of the 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 data showing any benefit either in very high risk patients like after an acute coronary event for instance or in secondary prevention if there is benefit. It's taking at least a thousand milligrams or more of EPA plus DHA, and over the counter, you're lucky if you get 300 to 400 milligrams in a single pill. That's a pretty high dose. Most of the time, you're getting 200 milligrams. So, the equivalent would be taking five or more of those kind of over-the-counter things. Whereas you can get a prescription where one tablet contains a thousand milligrams of EPA and DHA. So, you know, the prescription forms are the ones I would use and probably not just taking a few here or there over the counter is probably not helping your patients who are truly high risk and who you want to use omega threes in. And the, the prescription, the prescription ones, uh, I think they come in, it's a thousand and, and they, they take like two, two of them twice a day or something like that. Is that yeah, a reasonable yeah, dose? That's a reasonable dose. And those are the ones that, you know, at, at least the, the, the prevention maybe on, Sudden death, which is one pro, uh, thing that they may do in post-ACS patients, is at, at least 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams a day, which would be one to two of the prescription uh, 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 capsules a day. The, the doses to lower triglycerides are the four a day. Okay. So two, two twice a day, which would be about 4,000 milligrams a day. Yeah. Jeez. I feel like I might have the opposite experience of Dr. Watto, where asking a patient to take four pills a day is probably going to be a harder sell than just selling the statin. Well, yeah, I, I bet they like, they like the idea of the fish oil. I guess, I guess the four pills a day thing, yeah, you're, that's probably a good point. They're probably not taking four. I probably should remember to ask that next time. Yeah, you probably should. They may just get down to one, and uh, and that that's probably, depending on the situation, maybe better than... Than, than, than nothing, but uh, but uh, if it's really you're treating severe hypertriglyceridemia, you need to give them all the benefit they can get when they should be taking the maximum dose. Are there any other uh, non-pharmacologic supplements that that are that have any sort of benefit or have have been studied? Well, certainly niacin is a vitamin, and mm-hmm. uh, of course that was one of the appeals to it, uh, you know, way back when. Is that it, again, as a natural product, it's it's vitamin B three, but of course it it uh, in high doses the, uh, gave a lot of side effects. It was difficult to tolerate. So, but you know, as uh, as far as natural products are concerned, there are, um, you know, there there are phytosterols that you can uh, that you can take. Those are 
more of a challenge. They lower LDL cholesterol. They're hard to find. Uh, um, uh, soy protein in large amounts can lower LDL cholesterol, but again, that's not as supplements. Most of the time, you have to eat it, and uh, that's that's a challenge. But it, you know, for for some people, they like to hear that there are uh, other options to uh, to affect their lipids uh, uh, favorably. Uh, but generally, most of the stuff that you read about garlic and and, and stuff, that does not effectively treat any lipoprotein and is really wasting the patient's money if they say they want to take those kind of things to lower cholesterol. How often are you using this kind of thing in your practice? Well, I, you know, I think there's some patients who, who um, you know, do, do sort of take a holistic approach. You don't find them very often, but there's some who do. And, and they'll ask, what, what else, uh, what other natural things I can do? Okay, I'll take the statin, but what else can I do? And, uh, so you may talk about some of these more uh, natural options, and and certainly not harmful to the patient. And if they take them, they may be uh, additive or beneficial. Uh, you know, some of them work very similar to what uh, Zetia or Zetamide does. They inhibit cholesterol absorption and uh, and work in the GI tract. So, you know, instead of sometimes adding Zetamide, if you can talk a patient into taking phytosterols or or soy uh, large amounts of soy protein, they, you can probably get the same additional effect on LDL and through a, quote, more natural way of doing it than a, than a prescription medication. But boy, you sure have to have the right patient uh, to adhere to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I know a question that, that Matt had, and I share as well, is, is for those patients where the statin is probably the most clearly indicated medication, but are probably either hesitant because of news reports or things they've read or, you know, friends who've had side effects. What kind of, like, what kind of counseling do you give those patients you know, I know the NLA guidelines are sort of really have a huge emphasis on the shared decision making, but how do you sort of approach right. the patient who's a little bit hesitant to actually initiate a statin? Yeah, I, I think you need to acknowledge up front what, uh, what they may be reading or what they get from searches. And uh, uh, when they'll say things like, well, I hear uh, statins are going to give me diabetes. And you'll say, well, um, uh, that has been a, an association, but it's most commonly in patients who already have risks for diabetes, like obesity and and impaired fasting glucose uh, uh, already. And so you can use that and say, you know, a statin's a good thing because you're high risk. And actually, if you lose weight and eat properly and reduce your, your insulin resistance, that will make the statin less likely to progress to diabetes. And it's going to add to all those good things you're doing with losing weight and eating properly to further prevent cardiovascular disease. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, so you just talk like that. Then there's the muscle issue. Does it cause muscle problems? Yes, it can. It sure can. And it is dose dependent. Uh, and I, I think that that's something to, to acknowledge. I'm going to try you on as high a dose of statin as you can tolerate. If you have difficulties, we are going to find a way to make this work. And you try to get the patient to understand that it's important they take something and you'll work on trying to find a way for that to, uh, to occur. And then the last thing is memory. Patients say, I think that uh, statins uh, are going to make me, uh, you know, uh, uh, have cognitive decline. And I think, again, a, a, a logical discussion, particularly with our older patients, are that, that that happens. And it's going to happen. And that's part of aging. And just because you forgot where you put your keys does not mean the statin caused that. And, uh, <laughs> and you just have to be honest with them about those kind of things and say the benefits will outweigh the risks. And... Uh, so, you know, be prepared to discuss and not to dismiss what patients say, but try to make sure that the bottom line is that 
you feel that their risk is high enough that the benefits of the statin will outweigh all those risks. And I, I think I read this in, it was, it was in JAMA sometime last year. They were talking about, it was a, an article on PCSK9, but they were saying that st- they were worried that statins were going to get kind of abandoned too quickly uh, now that we have PCSK9 inhibitors. And they were saying that most, most of the time, like 90% of patients, if, if they fail one dose of a statin, they'll either tolerate another statin or a lower dose of the same statin. Right. Is there any truth to that? Well, there's, there's truth to everything you've said. You've said several things here. The first thing is nothing, right now, nothing is going to supplant a statin as first-line treatment. They're generic. They're life-saving. They work. And nobody's going to do a trial to compare a PCSK9 to a statin in a head-to-head trial. So PCSK9s are going to be added to statins, not in place of statins. So statins are still going to rule the roost for quite a while because they're incredibly cost-efficient. Secondly, most patients who feel they have a problem tolerating a statin at whatever dose you give them, most of them, with appropriate discussion and retrial, will be able to tolerate the same statin at a lower dose. That's number one. Number two, if they can't tolerate the lower dose, Again, most of them will then tolerate another statin at, uh, at a different dose. So I, I always encourage patients to say, look, we've got seven statins. I'm going to find one, and we're going to make sure that you can do this. And I do sometimes even trick patients uh, because there is one statin called patatastatin that uh, is, comes in one, two, and four milligrams. Yeah. So when you tell them, okay, I know you couldn't tolerate the 20, I know you couldn't tolerate the 10 of one of these other statins, okay, so now I'm going to give you 2 milligrams of this one. And amazingly, they can tolerate the 2 milligrams, but they get the same LDL lowering from that 2 milligrams they would have gotten out of the 10 or 20 of the other one they couldn't tolerate. So just sometimes, you know, make sure that they are willing to try other options, and I find that most patients are able to take a statin if you help them down the line. So you're correct. I would say easily 90% of them will be able to tolerate a statin if you work with them. And I want to get a little more specific on this. So when you try other statins, let's say someone is intolerant of a torvastatin, which is one of the more high potency ones. Right. Are you going to uh, if they're if they can in, if they can't even tolerate the lowest dose of a torvastatin, ten milligrams, are you right. going to put them to a lower potency statin at a at a at a very low dose, and then step it up? How how do you handle that in your practice? Yeah, you you can do that. I mean, uh, you know, they have what's called high intensity statins, which are torvastatin and rosuvastatin, and then they have um, uh, the rest of them are called moderate intensity or low intensity statins, and that includes fluvastatin, pravastatin. Uh, simvastatin, patavastatin, and I and lovastatin even, and and I I usually move to pravastatin or fluvastatin, and I, I I'll tell them okay if you can't tolerate a torvastatin or rosuvastatin, which are the high intensity ones even at their lowest doses, then I'll say okay I'm going to try one of these. It's an older statin, but it's been around for a long time. Patients tolerate it very well, and I will start it at 10 or 20 milligrams of pravastatin. And uh, amazingly, they do tend to tolerate that fairly well. Fluvastatin only comes in 40 milligrams. Um, yeah, but I have found some patients to tolerate that um, um, uh, a- as an option. But I can get most of the patients to get to at least 
uh, pravastatin once a day, every single day. Mm-hmm. Now, that's if you want to get a statin taken every day. Your other options are to give them every other day, three days a week, or even once a week. Any statin's better than none. Okay, so it's so it is so you would you would uh, even so if they were willing to try a, a torvastatin three days a week, Correct. you think there might still be some benefit there. Correct. You will get some LDL lowering, and they're they're uh, a torvastatin and rosuvastatin are longer acting statins. So if you take them on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you take ten milligrams of rosuvastatin, ten milligrams of atorvastatin, three days a week, you can get about a twenty five percent lowering in LDL um, uh, in in many patients. So it's it's possible to get reasonable effect, and and mostly because they're longer acting, you would not get that kind of effect taking some of the other statins that are shorter acting three days a week. And this question just came to my head when you're talking about the lowering. Is there such thing as too low? I've seen a handful of patients, they they start out with an LDL in the 60s, right. but because they have they come out as one of the high risk groups, they get put on Crestor or Lipitor and their LDL goes down to 10 or 20. Right. Yeah. There there are a few patients who get very low LDLs and, uh, um, you know, we know from, uh, genetics that there are people who interestingly inherit very low LDL anyway, they're called hypo, uh, 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 lipidemics. And, you know, they, they would come along because somebody would say, oh, my God, you're, you must be ill because your total cholesterol is 70 and your LDL is 20. And they say, well, no, I'm not, and I'm 30 years old. Why are you worried about this? Mm-hmm. And they inherited this. They've had it their entire life. So we know that low LDL is not a bad thing. But the question is, if your LDL is not that way because you were born that way, but you make it low, do you therefore induce something to happen? So if your LDL is 60 and you make it 20, do you now change and disturb uh, the physiology so that something bad might happen? And that's, I think, what people are concerned about. And so far, there's never been any evidence over all the years, including the statin years and now even with the PCSK9 monoclonal antibody uh, uh, studies, that inducing a low LDL in the 20s or so induces any bad thing to happen. Uh, and that's, uh, that's my feeling. And I, you know, I think lower is better and lower is safer. Okay. So you're not backing off when you, when you get LDLs back less than 40 or no. I, I think I even had a, a pharmacist question if I wanted to prescribe it because the patient, the patient was down below 20. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think if a patient can tolerate it, an optimal statin dose and it's the one you wanted to use and they're taking it and they're, and they're tolerating it and their LDLs, you know, 20, then I would continue on it. I mean, you're, you're number one, you're amazing that you're getting them on their optimal statin dose. (laughs) And I would uh, say congratulations and move, move on and, and forge on. So, uh, don't cut, don't cut back. Um, well, I'm sorry to tell you I wimped out in that, in that case that I was talking about. But uh. well, I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, I think the ACC guidelines even specifically say you can consider maybe backing off a statin if it's low, but there's no, there's no hardcore directives for it. But just Correct. with sort of the more recent trials that are coming out that have sort of muddied the waters, at least to my mind a little bit, like the, the HOPE 3 trial, I think it is, where we're now even treating patients who are at intermediate risk. Like, I feel like that question is going to be even more germane as to... How low can you go and, and how safe? Correct. Do you feel well, that is? yeah, you know, I mean, I think the primary prevention population is always the most challenging because, you know, you, you're trying to prevent their first event. Most of them are, are 
fairly healthy. You're trying to make it take a long-term look at prevention. And under those circumstances, you want to make sure that the risk is worth the benefit. And uh, so it, you do want to make the short-term risks not a problem if you're looking for a longer-term benefit. Patients who are secondary prevention, their, their short-term risk is high enough right. that you will tolerate some possible risk because you know there's a, a very, very big upside in patients with secondary prevention. So I, I, I do share your concern for a long-term strategy in primary prevention where you might be concerned about a, a long-term low LDL, um, maybe not so much if they are secondary prevention. Got it. So, so with the statins, uh, I, I, I have a largely geriatrics practice, and it comes up all the time. I have these patients in their 80s. Uh, some of them are healthy. Some of them are, have dementia. They've been on an aspirin and statin for a long time now. The family's asking me if they still need it. Right. If if they're healthy, I think the answer is probably a little more clear cut. If they're if they're tolerating it, you can probably keep them on it. Right. I mean, I, agreed. I, but if they're if they have dementia, right. How long how long does someone's life expectancy have to be for them to to gain benefit from from keeping them on a statin? Yeah, well, that's a that's a very difficult question. Um, I mean, I think uh, as people age, the you know uh, comorbid conditions are going to happen. I mean, uh, we don't live forever, so something's going to happen. And uh, there was uh, recently a, a very interesting uh, trial of is it safe to withdraw statins in patients who have serious uh, uh, elderly, potentially near uh, uh, end of life problems, bad dementia, um, uh, early cancer, um, severe heart failure, a variety of things that tend to come along. Uh, if you withdraw the statin, are you going to hasten their demise by making them have some sudden stroke or, or, or sudden cardiac death? And interestingly, the withdrawal of statins did not change their prognosis at all. So if you think that, you know, if you're afraid that taking a statin away from somebody who seems to be you know, near that end of life sort of situation, you're not going to hasten a problem. Uh, and I think discussion with the family and even with the patient, uh, it's reasonable to decide that withholding uh, certain preventative treatments is reasonable. And, and, and we've done that in, uh, in, in some situations. Otherwise, healthy folks, if they're living independently and they're 85 years old and they've been on a statin, and part of the reason they're probably still living to be 85 is because they have been taking their statin, right. and I would have them keep taking it. Yeah. So, and to piggyback on that question, Dr. Jones, I, this comes up more than I would expect, but you have an older patient who presents to you for the first time who probably by all rights has a pretty good life expectancy, but probably their primary driver of cardiovascular risk is age. So right. the initiation of a statin in sort of your older patient, is that is that a consideration for someone who you feel probably has a good shot of living a long time as long as you sort of minimize their cardiovascular risk, or is it just sort of not worth it past a certain point? Yeah, we don't know. I mean, we've not done that trial in, uh, in patients over 80. We've done it in their 70s, and there clearly is a benefit of initiating uh, statins in a primary prevention sense in their 70s. We just don't have a lot of data in primary prevention on statin initiation after the age of 80. But personally, I, I don't see a lot of difference in somebody 76 versus 83, if they're both right. in pretty good shape and both independent, if I've shown that I can make some benefit with low risk in an 80, in a 76-year-old, it probably should be similar for an 83-year-old uh, 
uh, if they're uh, in, in pretty good shape. And again, it's the patient's decision. How do they want to go? Do they want it to be? Do they want it to be? Uh, you know, do they think that if you can get some get some good uh, 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 quality of life with uh, with minimal uh, comorbid disease for a while, if they're willing to take a statin and tolerate it, they're now generic. I think it's a cost efficient thing to talk about. And I am, uh, I geriatrics is a big uh, field of interest of of mine. So I, I like that you're talking about kind of chronological age. So someone's 83, but their biological age, they might be 73 because exactly. they're, they're still exactly. very healthy. So exactly. I, yeah. We've all seen them. We've seen the 73 year old that looks 90 and the, and the 85 year old that looks 70. And, right. uh, so it's, it's an all an individual decision. You're absolutely right. Okay. The, we did mention the improve it trial a little earlier uh, that was when uh, I think it was last what was it 2014 fall 2014 somewhere around then. That's that's correct. Azetamib uh, was which was kind of what well, was it was Vitorin they were using right Azetamib and yeah. and Simvastatin. Uh, right. What did you think about that trial? Did that kind of revive this drug? Well, I think it did. I mean, uh, the, the the question was always if I'm if I can lower LDL. Um, by a non-statin means. So in other words, if you're on a statin, uh, if I add something to that to further lower LDL, and it's not a statin, do I get any incremental benefit and is it safe? And the answer to that question is yes. Um, Zetamide lowers LDL. It's not a statin. It works by inhibiting cholesterol absorption in the GI tract, and it's additive to a statin on the effect on LDL, and that a lower LDL was better. So this concept that if your LDL is 70 and I make it uh, near 50, do I get any incremental benefit? Yes. And was there any adverse problem with doing that? No. So it shows that the medication has a place um, and that its effect on lowering LDL does contribute to reducing vascular events. So it did open the door wider for its use, particularly in patients who probably need lower LDLs because they can't take optimal statin doses, for instance. Uh, you can get uh, as much as, for instance, if you had somebody on 80 of a torvastatin and they couldn't tolerate it and you went down to 10 and that's all they could tolerate, you could get the same LDL effect as 80 of a torvastatin by just adding ezetimibe to that 10 milligrams of a torvastatin. So you get the same effect as 80. So it's it's an option to get patients to lower LDLs who are high risk. You you just you just reminded me of a uh, a an article I read in Consultant Three Hundred and Sixty where they were talking about grapefruit juice in addition to statins can can boost LDL lowering, which yeah. I thought was a a novel a novel mechanism. Well, it yeah. it, it, it is because they they do it. it uh, grapefruit juice does interfere with the metabolism of some statins, um, uh, like atorvastatin and simvastatin, for instance. But by increasing the bioavailability, they sometimes can also increase the side effect profile. So, you know, whatever dose you're using, you're not quite sure how much you're increasing the bioavailability. While it may increase the efficacy, it may also uh, be offset by the patient's tolerability problems. Mm. Yeah, well, it's that the Improva trial, it's interesting. I, you know, I'm not sure it did much to, to help Vitorin so much or correct. really even Simvastatin. But it, but it did sort of seem to dispel this whole idea of the pleiotropic effect of statins, and rather than sort of magical other side effects, it really is the LDL lowering that seems to have the benefit. Which I guess correct. No, that's very that 
that's that that is that is Paul. That's very well put. Uh, there was a concern that maybe statins, besides just lowering LDL, had some other effects that contributed to vascular benefit, and that if you lowered LDL through through a mechanism that wasn't like a statin, you may not get the same benefit for the same degree of LDL lowering. And I think that uh, the improved trial tended to show it is it is LDL lowering that gives you the benefit, and that the exact mechanism does not have to be through a statin. And so why that, why do you oh, think that the azetamibe monotherapy hasn't really been shown to do much benefit? Well, they've never really done the trial. I mean, it only lowers LDL about twenty percent or so, and mm-hmm. uh, you you need to lower LDL at least that much to get uh, uh, some demonstrable benefit. And no one's done uh, an azetamibe versus placebo trial to find out exactly whether azetamibe by itself, through that degree of LDL lowering, reduces cardiovascular events. And it's probably almost unethical. I mean, um, when with the options of statins available, how could you ever put anybody in a placebo trial to test that? Uh, it just would be a challenge. Is that part of the reason why PCSK9 inhibitors might not have a head-to-head trial with statins? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, they're they're expensive. Uh, it's a they're, they're a unique uh, delivery mechanism, which is an injection, um, and they're competing against um, a very effective and very inexpensive class of drugs. And I, I I think even if they could show that they were equivalent to or non-inferior to statins as monotherapy, the cost would still make it uh, prohibitive. Um, to, to use in place of a statin. So uh, they would have to beat the pants off a statin to make them cost-efficient, and I'm not sure that would happen in a head-to-head trial. Paul, do you have any follow-up questions to that? I, I wanted to ask some questions about kind of the, the workup, the initial workup and the sort of the diagnosis, the diagnostic process. Um, no. I, I'm not sure where to put this question. Maybe I'll just throw it in here now. And yeah, go for it. We can fix it in post. Um, <laughs> but I guess along the lines of the lower is better, um, just going through the NLA guidelines, I, right. I think one of the things that I liked about the ACCHA guidelines was sort of discarding goals because I'm fairly simple-minded. But I, right. I see that the NLA guidelines actually still like the idea of goal LDLs. And I just wonder if you wouldn't mind sort of commenting how you use those and and sort of how that yeah. came about. Well, you know, I, I think, again, the, the idea is that it's a patient-centered approach. Uh, uh, telling the patient... Uh, um, and this is, the, this is the sort of way the NLA looked at it, was to say, okay, uh, you know, Mrs. Smith, you are high risk um, because you have this or this. Um, I'm going to give you this, this medication, and this is going to reduce your risk of heart disease. And they go, okay, so wh- wh- how does it work? Well, it lowers your bad cholesterol. And then they go, okay, so what is my bad cholesterol level? Oh, that doesn't matter. And then you go, they go, Oh, okay. Well, where do you want it to be then if we're going to take this medication? And you go, oh, well, that doesn't matter either. <laughs> and you just take the medicine and take it for the rest of your life, and uh, we're, we're fine. So the NLA sort of said, well, you need to talk about what the medicine's doing, why it's doing it, what's important about it. So knowing your LDL, talking about it, where it starts, where you want it to go, um, that data does suggest that that a substantial lowering from a starting point is beneficial. Following those values is an important part of patient education and discussion, as well as uh, adherence. 
And so the NLA felt they needed to put some numbers in there again, just so the discussion could be sensible and logical. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, they really threw us a, a curveball by, by giving us the, the new guidelines. Patients, what's my LDL? Well, we don't really care about that. You're right. You're right. That's that's how it goes. It, it yeah. doesn't... Yeah. I mean, we understand it. We understand it. We mm-hmm. get it. But the patient's the one that's got to take the medicine, and they're not the ones that understand it. So you have to put it in terms that they that, that's logical to them. So. And, and we're talking about... I will about, say... For- from an educational standpoint, it really did give me a two solid years of being able to ask residents what the goals for the patient were and then just making fun of them when they picked a number. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd be sorry to see that go away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I do want to ask a little bit, since we're talking about measuring LDL, uh, my first question would be, do you believe in non-fasting labs? The, the European Heart Journal just published right. these guidelines about non-fasting labs for most patients are, are fine. Right. No, I, I do agree with that, and I think uh, the NLA has also agreed with that, uh, that one of their uh, targets of treatment is, is called non-HDL cholesterol, and uh, non-HDL cholesterol is a great marker of risk, and it's a test that's, uh, that's free, and it's uh, remarkably predictable whether you fast or, or not fast, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what the Europeans said in their most recent um, uh, guideline is that you know, non-fasting lipids, if you have the patient in your office, and they're right there, and for compliance, and the patient says, oh, but I just ate three hours ago. You go, fine, you're still going to the laboratory right now because it's going to give me important information, and I want you to get your lab drawn now for, for, your, for your lipids for risk. You can use the non-HDL cholesterol as a good predictor of where a patient is and, um, and what their risk is based on their atherogenic lipoprotein. So I clearly agree with the non-fasting as a viable option. Uh, fasting is always great uh, because you can get other things like blood sugar and, and stuff. But but if you're looking at lipids, non, uh, non-fasting is just fine. And it does, uh, for for our listeners, I will tell you that if patients non-fasting, their labs come back, they're hypokalemic, they have a acidosis from being, you know, starvation. And right. it just, you know, it, it I can tell when the patients fasted a lot of the time on their labs. Right. How about... How about some things that I know very little about, uh, LDL particle size, the apolipoproteins. As, as a general internist, how familiar do I have to be with measuring these? Uh, I would suggest you don't need to be very familiar with that. <laughs> I would just say if you know uh, uh, the basic lipid panel and the non-HDL cholesterol, you can make good decisions on patients' risk from, from those numbers. Um, the uh, LDL particle number, um, is is very closely tied to the non-HDL cholesterol. Apoprotein B levels are closely tied to non-HDL cholesterol, so you don't need to do those specialized tests as screening in, in the vast majority of your patients. Uh, particle size, let me just say size does not matter. <laughs> number <laughs> matters. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what your particle size is, the number of particles matters, and that's usually uh, captured in your non-HDL cholesterol. Or if you measure an ApoB, that would be probably better than worrying about uh, particle size. The only other specialized lipid test that you might do in patients with premature heart disease personally or very premature heart disease in their family is what's called lipoprotein little a, LP little a. Mm-hmm. And there's about 10% of the population that inherits high levels of LP uh, little a. And it is something that unless you ask for it, 
uh, you won't test for it and you won't know it. And uh, it is a great predictor of risk and patients with high LPA should probably be on a statin just for that reason alone. And it may help you uh, uh, use that piece of information for primary prevention patients who have uh, bad family histories, for instance. How long are you comfortable keeping patients on statins? Because some, some of these patients, you, they're in their they're in their early 40s. Right. Their life expectancy is another 40 years. Do we? How long have statins been around to to, right. to say like whether or not these are safe to use for that long? Yeah. Well, the the first statin was approved uh, in uh, 1987, so it's been 29 years, and there are patients. Uh, some of our patients have been taking them for that long. Um, and about a, a lot of patients have been taking them for 20 years. So what I tell a young patient who's 40 years old mm-hmm. is I said, I can tell you that the statins are safe medicines for at least 20 years. So I can tell you that if you start a statin now, you'll be fine for at least the next 20 years. By the time you get 20 years down the line, we'll have 30-year data or more on the safety of statins. So you'll keep, be able to keep taking it for another 10 years beyond that. So there's a whole bunch of people in front of you who are telling us how safe this drug is. So start on it and don't worry about the long haul. Okay, that's a good wrap. I, I need to, so counseling patients on, on statins, when they say, why should I take it? Do you have kind of like a stock um, or, or just like a little spiel you give them? It'll lower your mortality, it'll prevent these things, or do you, right. do you throw out numbers? How do you find the best way to, to convince people? Well, I will say that the statin, again, the statins uh, have been around for 30 years. We've done extensive studies on them specifically for the prevention of heart attacks, sudden death, and strokes. So I tell them, I say, if you're interested in not having sudden death early, now you might not mind having sudden death if you're 95, but (laughs) sudden death early, if you think that strokes scare the living daylights out of you, then statins will also reduce those, and it will also do, reduce your risk of having heart attacks uh, and recurrent events or needs for interventions and, and, uh, and bypasses and so forth. So I think you're high enough risk to work on preventing those events. If you feel that that's important to you, then taking a statin is one of the best things you can do. It's better than aspirin. The data is better on it than aspirin, and it's safer than aspirin, by the by, uh, for for reducing uh, stroke and, and and heart attacks. And you know, I I, I think that uh, the, you know, the 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 patient then sometimes says, "Well, will it make me live longer?" And I said, "Well, if you don't have heart attacks and don't have strokes and don't have sudden death, yes, it does improve all-cause mortality, but." You're not going to live forever, but you will live longer than you would. Okay. I'm just going to cut and print that uh, and read it to patients verbatim. (laughs) 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 Paul, you have any any follow-up questions? I have just like kind of a smattering of questions left to ask you, mostly about the newer stuff. Okay. Yeah, no, it's along, again, sort of random questions. I don't think we've talked much about sort of what populations to start with, but I did want to ask in your your personal practice – you know, I have some colleagues that are using uh, coronary artery calcium in order to sort of either sway patients or sort of help them with intermediate risk patients as to right. determine whether or not to start a statin or not. I just wondered if that's something you use or sort of what your feelings were about that. 
Yeah, I do think that the presence of, of coronary calcium tells you you have atherosclerosis. Uh, the only way you get coronary calcium, it's dystrophic, and the only reason it gets there is because you have inflammation and damage in the artery wall, and calcium gets deposited where there's damage. So if you've got calcium, you have known atherosclerosis. Now, the reverse is, is not true. If, if you have atherosclerosis, you may not have calcium. But if you do have calcium, you definitely have atherosclerosis. So the higher your coronary calcium score, the greater is your risk for a future coronary event, even if you're primary prevention. So it's a great tool for you to identify a patient. But boy, is it sure a, a talking point when you tell the patient, they go, well, I, I feel fine. I don't have heart problems, do I? You go, you see this coronary calcium score of 250? This is not good. And you got atherosclerosis, and that really opens their eyes. So it, it can be very helpful. Thank you. Now, what, what, how do you see the PCSK9 inhibitors having a role going forward? And when are we going to have this, the clinical outcomes data for, for these drugs? Yeah. Well, the PCSK9 right now are, are, are going to be used for patients who need substantial LDL lowering and are at very high risk. And the low-hanging fruit there are the patients who have genetic uh, uh, cholesterol elevations. We call them familial hypercholesterolemia. Their LDLs are over 200, usually, milligrams per deciliter, and they've inherited that from the day they were born. And it's very hard on those patients whose LDLs are 200, 250, 300 or more to get them to an optimal or reasonable level of less than 100, particularly on tolerable high-dose statins. So the PCSK9s can do that on top of statins. So um, I think the familial hypercholesterolemic patients are definitely in, uh, those that should take PCSK9s. Now, you have some other patients who have uh, early premature coronary disease and can't take statins, and they are relatively statin intolerant. And, and with lower being better, if you can't achieve it with exetamibe or whatever dose of statin taken three days a week, uh, and they're young, reasonably young, and have premature coronary disease, I think those patients should potentially uh, be tried on a PCSK9 to see if they can get their LDL to as, as low and as optimal a level as possible. But short of that, these are not uh, mainstream drugs for everybody because they're expensive. And uh, as I said, they have not been proven to beat statins. Uh, so statins are more mainstream for most patients who are high risk. But there are selected patients right now that I think deserve the PCSK9s, and I think most of the uh, payers are willing to pay it for those selected groups I just mentioned. Now, the outcomes trials to show us whether adding these uh, monoclonal antibodies on top of uh, statins will further reduce coronary events, it's possible we could have the first trial finish at the beginning of 2017, so maybe six or eight months from now. Mm. It could be a year from now, but it could be as early as the beginning of 2017. So it's not that far away. What about just uh, if a patient can't take statin and they need lowering, just put them on azetamibe and phenofibrate and lovaza or fish right. oil? It, right. It, I think those are reasonable things to consider first. I mean, depending on their risk and where they are, and again, knowing where their LDL is, which you have to know, um, is important. And I think there was a consensus that came out to just at the beginning of this month in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, an expert consensus on how to use non-statin drugs. 
and they very specifically tell you when you might consider a PCSK9 and under what circumstances. And they use LDL as a threshold. And they're saying, you know, if you're taking optimal, whatever you can tolerate, if it's zetamibe and a statin and everything, and your LDL is still above 100 and you have established heart disease or familial hypercholesterolemia, then you probably should be taking a PCSK9. And I think that consensus is a very rational uh, approach to the use of these new medications. Um, and I think your readers, if they want to, should look at that. It came out in the first week in uh, July in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, an expert consensus on the use of non-statin drugs. We will definitely link to that in the notes for the show, as well as the, the one you mentioned earlier about statins at the end of life and not hastening death if you withdraw them. Correct. Uh, okay. Paul, a- any questions? Dr. Williams? No, no, I think I might be tapped out. Okay. You, you did mention something about the, the different groups, and uh, are, are there certain groups, sir? We, I, one of the themes that, that, I, that we've been talking about here, that LDL lowering in general is better, are there certain groups that that's true for, or is that pretty much all comers? Well, I think it's, it's pretty much all comers. Uh, I will say the group that probably gets the most benefit are those that have inherited a life a lifelong uh, high LDL, that's familial hypercholesterolemia group. Mm. I mean, if you have an LDL of 250 and it's been that way since you were born and you're 30 years old, you've had a large burden of vascular disease in that 30 years. And uh, uh, I think those patients, uh, if you're going to get them to live another 30 years, they need all the LDL lowering they can get and as much as, uh, as, as you can afford them. So there are some patients, I believe, who, who need as much LDL lowering as possible and and uh, and and the use of PCSK9s can help. So, I, of all of them, I think the the, uh, the familial hypercholesterolemic groups probably the greatest. Okay. Well, this I mean, this this is very helpful. I I definitely feel a lot clearer on these things now. <laughs> Paul. Yeah. No, I feel smarter. So okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> that that is miraculous, sir. It so. Take do, much. Do you want to do you want to give some take home points for the listeners and uh, do you and actually before you do that do you have anything that you wanted to plug I, I think uh, the National Lipid Association has some sort of conference coming up um, I can add it in um, I can add it in later if you don't know off the top of your head No they, they they do the National Lipid Association has three meetings a year they have an annual meeting uh, uh, which is really really a big meeting and they hold that usually in uh, in May or early uh, June. And we just had that uh, uh, that meeting. Um, we're going to have a fall meeting uh, at the end of August. Uh, I think it's August the 25th through the 27th at Amelia Island, Florida. It's our fall clinical lipid update. Uh, we have a spring meeting every year. And uh, the spring meeting is going to be at the end of February. I think the last weekend in February in Phoenix. And then our annual meeting will again be in uh, in May in Philadelphia in 2017. So if you go to, if you go to lipid.org, you can find the NLA website. And, uh, I encourage, uh, listeners to, to go there and, uh, see what you think about uh, the organization, uh, what the meetings have to offer, consider becoming a member. It's a great, um, uh, member driven, uh, organization. Okay. All right. So, Take home points for the listeners before we let you go. Right. Well, the first thing I think we we discussed and spent a lot of time on is 
please learn how to identify your patient's risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. You know, primary prevention uh, patients, who are they? Uh, uh, because they're the harder ones to identify and encourage to, to, to do preventative treatments. The secondary prevention patients are easy, but it's the primary prevention ones who deserve treatment are, are a little bit harder, but at least learn how to identify your patient's future risk for heart disease. Secondly, we've talked about it, lowering atherogenic cholesterol levels reduces atherosclerotic cardiovascular risk. It's straightforward and clear, and statins by far are the safest and most cost-efficient first-line way to do that. And lastly, get your patients to adhere and buy into therapy for the rest of their life because that's crucial to the success. All right. Thank you. We're all much smarter now on, <laughs> on lipids. <laughs> Extraordinarily helpful. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Well, I hope so. Thank you very much for having me, guys. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. This will help others discover the wonderful show. You can contact us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or you can follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time... I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. Thanks for listening. 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 Listening.